I hope you've had a chance to listen to or read 1 Corinthians in preparation for this Sunday. If you haven't, uh, maybe you're reading them after the sermons because you hope they'll make more sense after I talk about them. That's fine too, Uh, but it's all all there for you in your Bibles, and uh, I hope you're taking advantage of this series to get through your Bible. you know, as we, as we come to um, 1 Corinthians, we find a book, a letter, that is very difficult to translate into the 20th century. Uh, a wide range of topics is addressed, but, but the cultural context is, is, I think, a little bit beyond even the best biblical scholars to be completely uh, convinced or completely 100% sure of what it is and what it means. So uh, the context in which it was written is very helpful to understand. And again, I'm not going to go into the details of that context here this morning. But if you do go to efcwainwright.com slash the best story ever, uh, I do have the recordings there where I've given the detail and the background of these different parts of the New Testament. And you can take a look there and uh, get, uh, get that context so that will deepen your understanding of what you're reading. So that's there for you. I hope you take advantage of it. But uh, if, if we were going to uh, just read 1 Corinthians and then come up with, as I've been trying to do, one statement that encapsulates what we learn from it, we might do something like this. In 1 Corinthians, God says, You should be glad your problems in your church are not as bad as they were in Corinth. And uh, you wouldn't be entirely wrong. And uh, I've taken that from the book, and, and maybe you have too. Uh, we look at the controversies we have and the struggles we have and the, the, the uh, problems we have in our church. And then you read uh, 1 Corinthians and you think, boy, we're doing pretty good compared to what they were dealing with. And so uh, I don't think that's what it's written for. I don't think that's what it's meant to give us, but, but it does have that little side effect uh, if we just want to... Uh, be funny about it for a minute, but First um, Corinthians, the reason it's difficult, I, I mean, I don't mean difficult in that you shouldn't read it and get a lot out of it. I just mean it's, it's, it's challenging to know exactly how to apply what it teaches to our situation. Uh, it's, it's easy to understand what's being said, but the cultural context is different, and so that's what I mean by that. Now, we can roughly... Um, it doesn't divide easily into sections, 1 Corinthians, because it, it jumps around a bit. But we can roughly divide it into these five units. So, so chapters 1 to 4 deal generally with divisions in the church, uh, mostly over, over leadership, uh, which leaders should be followed. Uh, and, and they've kind of divided into factions behind different leaders. And, and that's what that, those chapters deal with, although they mention other topics and ideas. Uh, chapters 5 to 7 uh, deal with issues of sexuality and marriage and some of the struggles around that, although they also talk about other things, but as a rough categorization, that's what's in those chapters. Chapter 8 to 10 is about food, and in their case specifically, food sacrificed to idols. And again, Paul delves all over the place in different topics there, but that's the general category. 11 to 14 deal with, uh, with order or disorder in the gathering of God's people. So I hesitate to say church because you're going to think what we're doing here. They didn't have buildings that were called churches. They met in different places, mostly in homes. But they were disruptive and they were, uh, 
that they were not uh, beneficial or edifying to the people who were gathering. And there was issues with that. And so Paul addresses that. And then chapter 15 uh, deals with some questions they had about the resurrection. And, uh, and so uh, some theological issues that they were arguing about in the church. Now, we could go crazy with disagreement over how to apply these teachings in our day. In fact, many have. Churches have split over 1 Corinthians. And, uh, and that's possible to do. Many do it. We've probably all been engaged in some of that at different times and places in our lives. But here's, here's what, what I would say about it. We just don't know enough about the cultural, political, and religious context to be sure. The very best and most studied of biblical scholars looking at 1 Corinthians and first, uh, first century culture and politics and religion in Corinth don't agree on what, what, say for example, a head covering on a woman meant in their culture. Uh, I have read the literature. I've come to my own conclusions, what I think is what it means and what the cultural context was. But I, I admit that I have to hold those convictions with an open, humble hand because even the best scholars disagree. And so the, the point of that is, that is that the historical context has not been preserved in enough accuracy for us to be sure what exactly uh, is being talked about here. So it's difficult. Um, we, we can go to God's Word, a place like 1 Corinthians, and seek to go verse by verse and line by line and passage by passage and, and make a list of rules. Okay, this is what Paul, this is what God means in 1 Corinthians, so that means we should do this and we shouldn't do this. Do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And we can make a list of rules. And I can tell you, there are not p- enough pages in the world to hold all the rules we would come up with. And there's no person that could follow them all. I don't think that's the point. I don't think that's why God has 1 Corinthians in our Bibles. And and we would be tempted to ask, well, why is it in there if it causes division, if if it's so difficult to understand? And I think the, the, the problem we're having in all of those controversies is we're not looking at it correctly. We're not, we're asking the wrong questions of the text because God has it in his word for a purpose. And if we step back from those details for just a moment and remember, and this is one of the reasons I'm doing this lengthy multi-year sermon series on each book of the Bible, and we, we ask the question, well, what is it that God is saying? What is God revealing about himself in 1 Corinthians that helps us to know him better? That's the question I'm putting at the top of my page for every one of these sermons. What is God revealing about himself that helps us to know him better? Because we can't know him at all unless he reveals himself to us. And so in his word, this is the method by which God has chosen to reveal himself. We can wish that he gave us dreams. We can wish that he gave us visions and prophecies. We can wish that he gave us uh, personal messages, that we had audible voices. We could wish whatever we want to wish. But the truth of the matter, when God looked at the earth and said, I want to reveal myself to people so they can know me, he gave us a book. And so we need to submit ourselves to that book and say, what is it teaching us? What is God revealing that will help us know him? And when we do that with 1 Corinthians, it becomes much easier 
and it becomes hugely beneficial to us. And I would summarize it like this. In 1 Corinthians, God says, live every aspect of life through the lens of the gospel. Live every aspect of life through the lens of the gospel. See, it doesn't matter if we understand or agree on the specifics of 1 Corinthians. We could look at it instead like a a letter full of case studies. So you know what a case study is. You remember high school, right? In this situation, this is the advice. In this situation, this is the advice. In this situation, this is the advice. Once you go through five case studies, you probably got the pattern and you can do it in any situation that arises. So it's not that you have to have a list of rules of what you should or shouldn't do. You have, as God says, His Word written on your heart so that whatever you encounter, whether it be a big thing or a little thing, you can see it through the perspective of His Word, His law, and you know what to do. So to illustrate that, I want to go through these five, and I've got some glasses that are going to help me. So let's go to the first one, divisions in the church. The issue that they were dealing with was mostly who to follow. They had Paul, who as we saw last week, came to them in weakness and trembling. He wasn't a good public speaker. They had Apollos, who was one of the best public speakers in that time. And he came with a very different approach. They had Peter who'd visited them. And Peter was, you know, your down-to-earth Orthodox Jew. But God accompanied his ministry with miracles. Paul hardly ever did miracles. Apollos, we have no record of any miracles. But Peter was doing miracles wherever he went. And and so uh, the people in Corinth were like, okay, no, I I think we should follow Paul. I think we should follow Apollos. Anyways, their issues aren't our issues. We don't have those same things. But we do have leadership and we do have divisions over, over who we should or shouldn't follow, which teaching. Maybe, on, maybe we each have our favorite internet preacher and we wish everyone would listen to the same person we do. And, and if we put on these glasses, you see, we're all Christians and all the people in Corinth were Christians. But they were looking at this issue through the glasses of the world, the flesh, and the devil. These ones. Doesn't mean they weren't Christians, but they weren't taking into their reference the fact that Jesus Christ was coming back. They weren't taking into their reference the gospel realities, and so they were looking at these issues of divisions in the church through these glasses. And I'll tell you what I see when I put these on. It's not difficult. In fact, it's very clear and easy to understand what to do when there's divisions in a church. Pick your team, marshal your arguments, and win the battle. Simple. It's obviously the right thing to do because I'm right and you're wrong. It doesn't matter if I hurt a few people along the way because the truth is so important. Looks clear as day. In each of these situations, Paul doesn't give the kind of specific things that we wish he would, so we'd know exactly what to do and what not to do. But what he does is we look at the case studies, and I encourage you to read 1 Corinthians again with this in mind. He applies the gospel of Jesus Christ glasses to the issue. These glasses are not the world, the flesh, and the devil. These glasses are grace and love and self-sacrifice. 
the example of Jesus Christ. These glasses allow you to see the present situation in light of the fact that Jesus will return and we will meet him in the air and we will be made perfect at that time. And the people who are Christians who we disagree with will meet him in the air and be made perfect at that time. That's what these glasses show. So if we put these glasses on and look at something like division in the church, here's what we see. So don't boast about following a particular human leader, for everything belongs to God, whether Paul or Apollos or Peter or the world or life and death or the present and the future. Everything belongs to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Now that's just one verse. You've got to read that whole section of Scripture to get the full picture of how God applies, of how Paul applies the gospel glasses to the issue of division in the church. But the general rule you can get from that simple verse, it's like, we're not going to solve the issues, but it all belongs to Christ, and He's got it all in His hand. And He's going to sort it out when He returns. And the, and the, and the issue is this, is, is this person has this gift, and that person has that gift, and we're built up by all of them together. It doesn't mean they agree on every detail, but it means they all have something to offer that's of value, and we take what's valuable and we grow from it. And we don't pick teams. And we don't pick sides. And it's just as important that we don't hurt people as that we're right. It's not that, I'm not saying it's not important to study hard and be right. But we, held, we hold our convictions with humility that says, perhaps I have something to learn from the other person. That's what it looks like with these glasses on. It looks quite different with the gospel with the lenses of the gospel between me and the issue. Well, we could preach on divisions and leadership forever. Let's move on to a much more interesting topic. We don't talk openly about sex very much uh, in our churches. It didn't seem like Paul had any issue or embarrassment with it. He got right into the details. Maybe we should imitate him in that. Uh, but, but there was issues in the First Corinthian church, and I'm not going to list them. You can read it for yourself and, and understand what they are. But there was issues in marriage. There was issues in, in uh, submission. There was issues in, in immorality and sexual impurity. There, there was issues. They were all Christians. He refers to the, to the vilest of sinners on this list of sexual sins as saints. He doesn't refer to them as sinners. He sees them and refers to them as saints. They're all Christians, but they were looking at this issue with these glasses on. They weren't taking into reference the return of Jesus Christ. They weren't taking into reference the presence of the Holy Spirit and the forgiveness of sins and the generosity that God has. And when they looked at this issue, what they were seeing was what everybody sees. Um, Fight for your rights. Get what you can in terms of pleasure, no matter the cost towards other people. So if your marriage isn't working out so that you get all the pleasure you want out of it, it's okay to divorce and get, move on to something else where you can get what you want. They, we're not talking here about, about heathen people. We're talking about Christians and marriages and stuff. But they were justifying hurting people and, going and, and, and not following through with their vows and their promises in marriage for the purposes of physical pleasure. Oh, they were doing it all by the rules. 
They were looking at it from this point of view, from a point of view that says there's, there's a lot of bad in the world, but there's at least this one thing that gives a lot of pleasure. So I'm within my rights. I'm with, within my, I can justify whatever behavior it takes to at least experience something good. Paul encouraged them to put these glasses on, the gospel glasses, and look at the whole issue of sexuality and marriage from a different point of view. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and, has, and was given to you by God? You don't belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. See, with the other glasses, it's all about honoring myself. And he says, apply the gospel to this issue and you will find out that it's a much higher calling than you thought. What does it mean to honor honor God with your body? He's not talking about some esoterical thing. He's talking about sex. That's what he's talking about. And what he's saying is, the way you deal with this passion this sometimes overpoweringly strong passion in your life has the opportunity to bring people to know God. The way you keep your promises, the way you put the needs and desires and purity of other people before your own fleshly desires, the way you, the way you, uh, you abstain as a single person the way you, you put God first even above this most strong of human passions, the way you handle sexuality is worship. The way you handle sexuality can show people the character and grace and love and self-sacrifice of God. It's not just about you. You don't belong to yourself any longer. You belong to God. But what a privilege, what an honor to be able to honor God with this part of our lives. To in the most um, impassioned of ways show the world a different way. A way that takes into view the fact that when Jesus returns, there will not be giving and taking in marriage. This thing is trivial compared to eternity. We can control it. We can deal with it honorably. We we can love people. We We can do it in a way, we can handle this part of our lives in a way that brings honor to God. Now, of course... We need to do a whole gift week on a weekend on that. There's a lot in that. Uh, but that points us in the direction. It says it's not about getting the rules exactly right. It doesn't mean we shouldn't work at the rules and try to get them right. But we're going to disagree on those rules. We're never going to come to complete agreement on that. But we can love each other. And we can honor each other in our bodies, in our sexuality, in a way that turns people towards Jesus. If you don't know what I'm talking about, ask yourself that question over and over again, and it will be revealed to you. But we'll be here past our lunchtime if we preach all the sermons in one. Food sacrifice to idols. 
again, it's just so far out of our context that it's hard to understand how to apply that teaching to our life. But I can tell you um, very clearly what they were doing. They were putting on these glasses. They weren't taking into reference eternity. And they were looking at this issue of food sacrifice to idols. And they were saying, what I think about this issue is right. And all the rest of you have to agree with me and behave as I behave. Only problem was, there was two sides that had that opinion. Some people thought that there, are, there is only one God, and that is the, the God of the Bible, and so all these other gods that this food has been sacrificed to aren't even gods at all. They're just pieces of brick and stone and, and, and wood. And so, and so the only Christian thing to do is to go to the market and buy the cheapest meat, which is the meat that's been sacrificed to idols. And then that way you can, you can have more money to help the poor and to do all the good things you want to do. And it's, it doesn't matter. It's, they're not gods anyway. So what harm could it do? But then there was the other side, people who had been probably deeper into the religions. And they had the, the, the attitude that said, you know, it doesn't matter uh, whether those are real gods or not. When I see that meat... When I smell it cooking, my heart is worshiping that other God. And it's taking me away, away from Jesus. And, and you other people who are eating that meat, you think you're so holy and pure, but you're actually worshiping those other gods even if you don't realize it. So you have to stop. So with these glasses on, the only thing they could do was fight. And they were fighting. Paul said... Take those glasses off and look at the issue through the lens of the gospel. Through the lens of the sacrificial Savior who died for our sins, who conquered all things, and who's coming back to put things right. There's many things he wrote, but this is one of them. Again, um, you must be careful so that your freedom does not cause others with a weak conscience to stumble. It's just one of the things. I'm not going to take time to go through all the other things. But when we look at it through the gospel lens, it says, I can sacrifice anything that I'm free to do so that other people don't stumble. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I have the freedom to do it. But why would I? if it's causing someone else to worship an idol. Now, we can take that case study and apply it to many different things, uh, but we see that with the gospel glasses on, the growth and development and purity of our brothers and sisters is more important than my own conviction on the issue. They really struggled in the area of the gathering. Um, I, 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 I hesitate to use the the church service or the worship service because their context was so different from ours and we get the wrong impression and the wrong ideas. They didn't have a building that they gathered in. They gathered in homes. It was different. But still, they struggled with this whole thing and it was causing them uh, great difficulty. But if they put on, uh, they put on these, these glasses, which they had done, what they saw was this. Um, my gift... And my ability is the most important one. And therefore, everyone else should be quiet and just listen to me. So, so I, I'm good at this. So I know, I know this well. But, uh, but they, they, were, 
didn't matter if they had different different ideas or different gifts, but they were each one was saying, I should be the one to monopolize the service. I mean, there was other issues. It's a, it's a complicated passage, but that's one of the main uh, things that was going on. And um, Paul said, you're looking at it from the selfish point of view. Put on the gospel glasses and you'll see it differently. Now, I'm, I'm quoting here from the very end of chapter 13. And you know chapter 13 as the love chapter. But you have to, to really understand chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians. You have to understand it's right in the middle of a section where he's describing how to behave with one another in the worship gathering. He doesn't talk about this and then put 13 in and then continue talking about it. It's all the same topic. So when he writes 1 Corinthians 13, he's not talking about marriage. He's not talking about... He's talking about how we deal with one another in the context of the church community. And he concludes with these words. Three things will last forever. Ever. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. And that's the emphasis of his whole teaching there. If what you're doing together isn't felt and experienced as love, you're doing it wrong. doesn't matter what you're doing. You're doing it wrong if it doesn't result in love, if it isn't experienced as love by other people. Faith and hope are important too. So teaching about faith and, and prophecies and, and sermons about hope, all that's important. But the most important thing here in terms of the gathering of God's people is love. Now we can uh, look at one more. We'll do it briefly. The resurrection. Um, if I put these glasses on, it's real simple. There is no such thing. Everything's in reference to what happens in this world. There's nothing else. So there were some people in the Corinthian church that were denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ and not living then in reference to the coming return of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of believers and the those who would meet him in the air. And so Paul said, put these glasses on. Let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. It is the good news that saves you. If you, you, if you continue to believe the message I told you, unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. I think there's a lot of value in approaching 1 Corinthians this way. Live every aspect of life through the lens of the gospel. We're never going to be able to write enough rules to hit every situation. We're, we're going to run into a situation every single day of our life that we don't have a rule for. So maybe lists of rules, legalism, is the wrong approach. But here Paul, God gives us in 1 Corinthians Five complicated, difficult case studies. How should we behave in this world and towards one another? And his answer in each case isn't a list of rules, but it's look at the gospel of Jesus Christ and apply it to this situation. And then you will be wise. And when we look at that and when we study that from that point of view, we soon begin to understand that there's no situation in life that we can encounter where we can't apply that method and then know what to do. 
know what attitude we should have towards it. We don't need a list of rules. God's heart is God's law is written on our hearts through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So focus on learning the gospel. Focus that, that's why Paul prays for them in all these things that you would know Jesus Christ. That's his prayer. In each of his letters you can find uh, words to that effect. If you know Jesus Christ and His gospel, you won't be confused about what to do in situations. Put on those glasses. Look at it through the lens of the gospel and you'll know. You'll have a good idea. So let's, let's just do that. I know we're, we're going a little past 12, but we had the baby dedication and that was worth the time that it took and so we're going to take a little time on this end because we've got to get practical here. Okay, so what does that mean? Fine for them and their weird situations. What about us? Let's take a couple of more contemporary issues and try that. The first one is a, an experience I've had. It's a little bit ago, so maybe the issue isn't as hot as it was at the time. And so uh, maybe we can talk about it um, with some generosity towards one another. I was uh, in seminary, so I'd finished Bible college and I was in seminary. And uh, I, I had met a, another guy, another fellow student, who we had that kind of, right off the start, when we first met, we hit it off. So we didn't know each other very well yet. We were kind of relative strangers, but fellow students. But we knew enough to know this was a relationship worth pursuing because it, it had potential to be a good friendship. We just knew that from the start. And so we were hanging out with some other friends one time, and, and, and I don't remember exactly um, what was happening or what I was playing, but I was playing some music at the gathering. And uh, it wasn't Christian music. Knowing me, it might have been Pink Floyd or Super Tramp or the Eagles or something like that. And, uh, and I was playing the music, and we were having a good, uh, good uh, social gathering together. And then a couple of days later, uh, this, this new friend who I was getting to know uh, when it was private and, and not, um, not in the public way, as, as is biblical, confronted me on the issue. And he said to me, uh, Marvin, no good Christian man would play that kind of music. So I put on these glasses. I'll admit that I did. You see, I knew he'd been a Christian two years. My dad was a pastor. I grew up in the church. I had the Bible verses at my fingertips. I had the arguments. I knew I was right, and I was going to convince him. It's okay to listen to such things. You know, in moderation, not all the time. You don't want to get your mind too far down the gutter. But anyways, I'm not going to make those arguments here today. But I was ready, and I started down that path. wasn't very long into the conversation, like probably two sentences, and I realized I was going to lose a friend. And uh, somehow I managed to take those off and put these glasses on. And I listened to, and I discussed, and I, and I listened to his story. And I found out that he'd grown up all the way through high school as a teenage alcoholic. Uh, through college, every weekend, Friday night till Sunday, till Sunday night, Monday morning, limping into class with a hangover. He couldn't remember hardly anything he'd done on any weekend in his entire young adult life until he became a Christian. And so now he'd been a Christian for two years and he still struggled with the temptation towards alcoholism. And whenever he heard that music that was always playing at the parties, he couldn't resist it. 
And, and after that gathering we'd had where he was at the beach with us and I'd put on the music, um, he, he had, it was all he could do that night to not go to the liquor store. And when I heard that from his heart, I was like, it, I'll never listen to that stuff again if it has that effect. But you see, he put on these glasses too. Now I'm going to tell you my side as he listened to me and I explained to him how as a young Christian boy, a pastor's son, the, the list of stuff I was allowed to listen to was very small. And there was nothing in any of the music that could access the emotions I was going through in puberty and afterwards. And, and you know me well enough to know I don't access emotions easily. And so... When my brother and I put the blankets over our head in the dark in the middle of the night and tuned into the radio stations and heard that music, I was finally able to access the turmoil emotions of that anguish of that time. I mean, I don't want to make it big. It seems small now. Teenage problems when you're an adult and have had much more difficult problems in your life. But at the time, it was, it was essential. It felt essential to me. I was suffocating. And I couldn't get this stuff into expression but it was being held down and inside me and it was having coming out in the wrong places. And so this music allowed me to access. And I realized as a young boy, I was a pastor's son and I read my Bible, that many of the things that were being expressed in these secular songs were the same things that were being expressed in the Psalms of the Bible. And I also realized that the secular songs stopped before the answer came and left the hearer hopeless. And I was able, because I had biblical knowledge in the situation I lived, to then take the Psalms and other scriptures and finish the story. Finish the prayer properly. So my friend listened to that. And he said, yeah, you're right. The, the music we have in church is wonderful, but it doesn't get into the stuff that we really feel sometimes. Now, I'll say, since I was in, in college till now, it's gotten better. We have some better songs than we used to in that regard. And so he said, you know what, I, I think it's fine if you listen to that stuff sometimes, but just don't do it when I can hear it because it's going to drag me down the wrong path. So we understood each other. I was challenged to be more discerning in what I listened to, be more careful. He was challenged to be more open and have, a, have an idea that he was going to grow to a place as a Christian where that wasn't a problem anymore. But far more important than any of that, we now had a friendship where I knew I had a friend I could go to with anything. My deepest thoughts, my darkest sins. And he'd accept me, he'd hear me out, he'd love me regardless, even if we disagreed. And that's valuable. That helps me to know God more than anything. But I'll never get that with these glasses on. I'll never get there. Let's take a much more controversial issue. I don't know, maybe you don't respect me as a pastor if you know I listen to the Eagles, but I do. <laughs> but let's take something that's truly controversial. Today, this morning, maybe they've dismissed already, maybe they haven't, Within the Evangelical Free Church of Canada, which is the denomination we're a member of, 
within the Alberta Parkland District, which is the grouping that we're most affiliated with, there are churches gathered who have never yet had an in-person service since over a year ago. They're still on live stream only. They're still on pre-recorded video only. There are also churches within the Alberta Parkland District of our denomination that have never had a restriction on their service, never had a mask, never had a seating uh, attendance uh, restriction or anything like that within our family. If we put these glasses on, I'll tell you what will happen. By the end of the year, we won't have a denomination. If we pick teams, marshal our arguments, and fight to win, there will only be division, discord, and hatred. That's it. That's all that will be left. It will destroy us. If we put these glasses on, we see something quite different. Same thing. I'm not saying we go soft on our convictions. But we see something quite different. Because these glasses tell us to be humble. These glasses tell us to be forgiving. These glasses tell us that the ones who haven't opened a service and think we're wrong to even do what we've done, and the ones who've never had a restriction and think we've wrong, we're wrong to f- even follow the restrictions we have, when Jesus comes and the, thun- and the trumpet sounds and the one with the sword of truth coming from his mouth arrives, we all will meet him in the air. The ones who haven't had an open service yet and the ones who have never had a restriction, we will all meet him together in the air and it won't matter anymore. It will be immaterial. It will be trivial. So maybe we need to treat each other like that now before he comes. Maybe we should live in light of the hope that we have. And here's what that looks like. I'm I'm convinced of this. It means that, yes, I disagree with the biblical interpretation of specific biblical passages that are relevant to this topic. We'll say Pastor James Coates or our own, I don't mention the names of the free church pastors because you don't know them and if you meet them at a conference, I don't want you to pick them out as the one that was on this position or that position. But I've listened to his sermons. He's a good preacher. He preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm glad that people are hearing that gospel even if I disagree with the specifics of how to act in this situation. We have to be honest and say, I don't think this is likely, but it's possible that five years from now, we'll look back from our church and say, you know what, it is now illegal to be a Christian in Canada and we should have held the line with those who did in 2020. 
That's possible. I don't think it's likely, but it's possible that we'll look back with regret at the decisions we made in this church. It is also possible that we will look back in five years and realize that we didn't think this long COVID was a thing, but now five years later, people are dropping like flies that had it during this time, and we wish we'd have stayed closed like the churches that never had an in-person service. I don't think it's likely. I don't think that's how most viruses work, but we don't know. We don't know the future. We don't have enough information to be sure our decision will stand the test of time. And neither do the other churches. So we have to be humble and loving and kind and generous and forgiving. Not that we don't make our decisions with the best information we have and hold firm to them. But do you realize when Paul was talking about people who were preaching the gospel with the express purpose of harming him, they thought if we preach the gospel, Paul will end up in jail. That's why they were doing it. Paul will be put to death. They were trying to kill him by preaching the gospel. You know what he said? Most of you remember. Whether for good motives or bad, I'm glad the gospel is being preached. Whether with masks on or masks off, I'm glad the gospel is being preached. It's trivial in light of the resurrection. It's trivial in light of the hope of the return of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying it's not important. I'm not saying there's not a right and wrong. But it's trivial compared to the gospel got to take these glasses off and put these ones on because if it doesn't result in the people even the ones we disagree with feeling like we love them it's wrong it's wrong how do you put on those glasses We're going to close now with two things instead of talking about it and instead of going on and on we're going to actively Put the glasses on. Are you with me? Are you willing to do that? Let's put on the glasses of the gospel. The first method of putting them on is a scripture reading. The second is a worship song. So let's put on the gospel glasses. Don't put it off. Let's do it right now. Is my screen still working? Yep. Okay. You can even read with me if you want to. But you can just read silently. And let me say the words if that's your preference. But let's just think about this. This is how you put on gospel glasses. If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, if I had such faith that could move mountains, but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable. And it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about the injustice 
but rejoices whenever truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith. It always, it is always hopeful, and it endures through every circumstance. Prophecies and speaking in unknown language and special knowledge will become useless, but love will last forever. Now our knowledge is partial and incomplete. And even the gift of prophecy reveals only part of the whole picture. But when the time of perfection comes, these partial things will become useless. When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete. But then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. Three things will last forever, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Our closing prayer will be a song, and then you'll be dismissed.